Hi, this is Kate Brownfield from ADHDKidsCanThrive.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. I appreciate you all. My guest today is Anna Hamayun. She is an author of several books, an educator, founder of Green Ivy Educational Consulting in Silicon Valley, and an executive director of a nonprofit called Luminaria Learning Solutions. She joins me today to specifically talk about her latest book titled, Erasing the Finish Line. Thank you for being here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Okay, so you wrote a new book that is coming out called Erasing the Finish Line. So why don't we start with why you wrote this book and who it's for? Well, thank you so much again for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And the reason I wrote the book is that I've worked with students now for over two decades. And even over the last eight to 10 years, and I've seen how much everything has changed in terms of the conversation. And it's almost been amplified around this rush to what are you doing at 18? Where are you going to college? What is your next step? Do you have it all planned out? And the reality is, is is that there's so many other things we need to focus on, these underlying skills that really are key to long-term well-being and financial stability, really. And so I wrote this to help parents and to help caregivers and to help educators understand that we really need to reframe this conversation around the finish line Um, because 18 college admissions has become this insidious conversation of where are you going? What are you doing next? And yet I know, because I've worked with students for over two decades, that, you know, so many of my students that are now in their early thirties, I went back and I visited with them and their stories are so wonderful and winding and different journeys around different students. And they've all been really successful because they've been focused on these underlying skills and these habits and these routines rather than just you know, where was I going at 18? And so that's really what I want to reframe the conversation for all families, particularly those who have a child with ADHD, which is the subject of your podcast. And I think is so important and is the work that also I've been doing for the last 20 years. So many of the students that walk into my office have been diagnosed with ADHD. And in, in fact, at least two of those stories of students that I work with are those who have ADHD. Okay. And they said, so the students, when they reflected back, what did they say was the most important thing to them when they look back to this through their entire school year? Or was there like, I guess, you, like junior so high, high school? Okay. Yeah. So I'll give you the story of one of the students. I think this is really relevant and helpful. So when he first walked into my office, he was a sophomore. He had a 2.8 GPA and we had to do summer reading together. Um, and it was Pride and Prejudice. And he was like, what am I going to do? And in those days, now, again, he's in his 30s now. So we used to read those books on tape. It was before Audible and all of those things. So we sat down to start reading it together. And I, I like immediately failed. And then I showed him some different techniques and he got into the book. And then over the next two years, we consistently focused on the habits, not the grades. So the underlying system around organizing, planning, prioritizing, starting and completing tasks, managing distractions, being adaptable when something didn't go as planned. And so what ended up happening is he went from a 2.8 to a 3.1 to a 3.3 through 3.7 to a 3.8 GPA by the time he was a second semester senior. 
And the key here is that every time I would say, we're focusing on the habits, when you focus on the habits, everything else will come. And then the second piece that we did was I always asked him, are you doing the best you can with what you've got? And that was a very freeing question because I was never asking him, are you doing your best? Are you the best you can be? You know, I was like, are you doing the best with what you've got right now? And he would always come up with something because he was a competitive kid. He was a water polo player. He was a swimmer. And so he always had something that he was like, I need to work on this. I need to work on this. And he went from being able to monotask for only 10 minutes, right? In the beginning, yeah. we were cool with that. That was great to 50 minutes. And here's the great thing. So he's now in his early thirties. He has a great job, which I work, talk about in the book. He talks about the daily routines and touch points that he uses even today in his job, in his work that help him navigate his life with ADHD in a way that helps keep him grounded. So that includes working out, that includes different touch points during the day, that includes all the things that he has in place, the way he eats, the way he works, um, to, again, to help keep him um, moving forward and doing the best he can with what he's got. So to me, that's really thrilling for any parent who is maybe in the trenches with a middle school student or a high school student and being like, where are they going to build these habits? Is it going to happen? Um, and the key thing I also want to highlight, which it, he's brought up to me several times since, is that he said to me, Anna, if, if when I first came into your office, you would ask me what my grade goal was, which you never did. Um, I would have said a 3-1 because I would have been thrilled with over a 3-0 because my grade point average was a 2-8. Right. He said, but you never did. Like, let's focus on the habits. You know, and you always ask, are you doing the best you can with what you got? What can we improve on now? And it was very incremental, right? It wasn't, we're going to change this overnight. And I tell the story also because it was over two years. So many families today, they'll call my office and not everyone, right? But just you, I hear it more now, I feel like, and they're like, well, how many sessions is it going to take? You know? Yeah. Well, right. five, five weeks, right? And I'm like, well, your child took a lifetime to get to who they are today, 14 years, 16 years. I'm not sure why you think that five sessions is going to have this miraculous change. And the key that we know with students with ADHD is that we need more time structure and support and that we need to look at it as incremental progress rather than an overwhelming, like what's the five tip method. And then we're changing it all. Right? Yeah. It's a journey. It's and a so journey. About, yeah. It's not exactly fixable in five sessions, as you, as you said. Right. And probably oh, and early, know. I think what you're saying too, on it, it's like, um, some people will say, I think in the school system, especially for ADHD kids, they're not the most supported with these habits that they need to be building. Right. So, um, I do see some chatter where, there's this confusion about whether they should be building habits or getting therapy, right? And mm -hmm. so, like, if they get therapy, that's going to teach them to be motivated to develop these habits. Well, I'm a big believer in working in parallel. And I know yeah. that's a lot of resources put up front, but, and people have called my office before and said, you know, we can only do one. And I'm like, then do the therapy first because the emotional regulation and focusing on the underlying motivation is important because the student has to see the benefit for themselves. Yeah. Right. I can get buy-in to a student by a really focus on what's important to them. But if a student, and this has really happened more in the last two or three years where parents will call me up and say, my child is completely resistant. They will sit in the car. They will not even come out. And I think some of it's around approach, right? That they're feeling like this is punishment. 
that there's something wrong with them. But the way I look at it is we all need extra support in different areas of their, our lives. I always use this example for myself, right? I would love to tell you that I am going to do all the sit-ups and push-ups and jumping jacks and run and do all the workout by myself because I'm so self-motivated. I am not. And, but I know if I go to a class, I will feel so great afterwards. And if I keep up that routine, I'll feel great afterwards. So that keeps me motivated, but I know that that's something I need to outsource. And the key piece is that as I go through it, my habits can change. I can pick up certain things for myself, but I also know that I need those touch points. And so that's where really I focus on with students is therapy can really help with the emotional regulation, which is important. Therapy can really help with building the coping mechanisms that are important to mental health, which then leads them to be open to building the executive function skills. Right. Right. Okay. So um, talk to me a little bit about how ADHD kids, as well as all children, um, have this desire and value during their school year connecting to others and what that means to them and how that's changed over the time due to social media and phone use? Such a great question. So one of the biggest things that I found from revisiting my students from 10 to 15 years ago was that something I knew and many of us know as adults, right? That we assume when we're going through school or our kids are going through school, that grades and test scores are the most important thing that everyone's remembering. Like they're focused on, oh my gosh, you have this missing homework. But if you ask people to look back on their experiences, what they remember most is connection and feeling a sense of belonging. And it's not just about friendships, which are important. It's about that teacher that I really liked or that that club that I love to do or that the, uh, the after school activity or the summer job that I met these other people. And it wasn't just about schoolwork or grades or tests, but we had this opportunity to build skills in this other way. And yet we underestimate the importance of connection that is non-transactional and is authentic. And so one of the things that I find really important is that there is much more of a barrier for that initial conversation. Kids really do struggle with small talk skills, right? So you're standing in front of somebody at the line for coffee or for, you know, the lunch line or you're at a coffee shop, or you're in a room at school, and you just don't know people. And there's just silence. And people reach for their phones, because they don't know how to say, hey, my name is so and so nice to meet you. There's such a barrier. So one of the things that I've spent the last four years doing five years doing is um, piloting this middle school advisory program. We work with middle schools. We piloted in a public school district in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's now being used in schools in San Francisco. Um, and one of the exercises, you know, it's, it's a weekly advisory curriculum. One of the exercises is find someone who, and it's all about have, making sure that every kid breaking down that initial barrier. So they talk to every single kid in the class, other kid okay. at the beginning of the school year, because we know that in six weeks, people form these alliances or they're like, Oh, I haven't talked to that person. So they'll never talk to that person. But if right. just someone was like, okay, you need just have a three second conversation. You've now broken down that barrier. And that's the barrier that we're seeing that, that rose up with social media and technology and then got even higher with the pandemic, yeah. right? We had masks on, we had social distancing. We adults are out of practice, right? You know, like going to an event, you're like, oh my God, that's going to be so much energy right now Right. to just get out of my house and go and talk to other people. 
But a lot of us feel really rewarded after we do that. So we're trying to break down those barriers with our, our kids because that connection, that belonging, those multiple spaces of connection are important. Yeah. And that's something that you can teach your child, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Think right. about it. You go to, you, you go to an event where they have to talk to adults or people they don't know, and you, you kind of help them a little bit, but then you see, oh, okay. They're on the their way too. and they, they build confidence. Okay. So what's your advice and your insight that you've seen with the rise of phone use and video game playing and with kids in academics and spending too much time on their phones? Like what's happening there and what's your wisdom and insight for parents? Well, we know that students with ADHD in general can be really, they get far more interested in that dopamine hit, right? And video games provide that, phones provide that. And so a lot of times parents and educators and caregivers in that first generation of social media education, it's all focused on get off your phone, right? Don't be on your phone, right? But the reality is now we have to use screens for so much of our work. And so I tend to think, creating those weekly and daily times that are offline rather than saying, okay, limiting to X, Y, Z number of hours, say, okay, figure out what are the times that are offline, whether that's at night for an hour, whether that's in the morning for an hour, whether that's on the weekend for one afternoon and really building that in. And the other piece that you have to break the habit around video game use, what we're seeing more and more, and I have seen a number of students come to my office after having to leave college because they weren't leaving their room because of video game overuse and problematic overuse that started during the pandemic. And then they create the social anxiety about having to go and meet new people. And so they'd rather just stay in their room talking to people, you know, online that they feel like they know. Yeah. So breaking the habit piece is really important. And what I mean by that is if something is happening every day, like video game use, it it lends itself to being problematic overuse. So multiple days in between use is really important. If you see that your child's hygiene habits, ability to get the, the regular pieces of life done, whether that's eating, bathing, sleeping, aren't happening, that's a problem. And so looking at it that way from a mental health standpoint, um, because those games are meant to be addictive. Social media is meant to be something we go back to again and again and again. You know, I, as an adult, I put, um, you know, like I use Opal, it's an app. And I just like block all the apps that I want to app block between eight and, and 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. Because I don't need to be on the apps between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. Otherwise you get into this, this slide of usage. But you're bringing up a really important point, particularly for students with ADHD around, you know, we go to the place that gives us that initial spark and right. we can be really attracted to that in a way that moves us away from our eating, our sleeping, are all the things that keep us regulated um, in an important way. Yeah. So maybe limiting it. A little bit. I think I love your advice on finding periods of time where you agree maybe with your child that you're going to be off of it and you're going to go do something else. Okay. So now I have a question about what you think about AI and how kids are using AI for academic use and benefit. 
especially ADHD kids. I could imagine this is an easier way, uh, less resistance to getting, you know, from point A to point B in an academic assignment. So what is the, how is this going to go? Do you think? You know, I don't have a fully formed answer for that because I'm still learning, engaging and gathering my own information around that. I think it's a very critically important topic and it's something that I'm working on figuring out what is my perspective. One of the things I am concerned about from a bigger perspective around this though is AI generates content from a lot of different sources, right? right. And so this idea of citing sources has gone away. Um, and so I worry about what does that look like in a world where we've taught people they need to cite their sources. We've taught people it's important to give credit. And in fact, it's plagiarism if you don't. And now we have a tool that we're sort of like takes it through a sausage machine and spits it out for us. And now we're like, oh, but it was AI. It wasn't AI. I mean, it, it came from other sources before then. And so right. the answer to that is going to be really interesting. Um, it's also going to be really interesting because all those things that they develop to develop, to, you know, look at plagiarism, like, you know, the turnitin.coms and all of the things that you could run your compute, you know, your papers through, right. You know, they may or may not be fully, um, compatible with this new world. Now, how does that affect students? Here's the thing. Students need to learn how to communicate written communication, oral communication, if this is used as a tool to help them build their underlying skills, then that is one thing just like, you know, uh, cliff notes or something else might've been where I used to help students. Um, I would have them read a synopsis of something like Pride and Prejudice, and then we would actually read the real text, right? Yeah. So we'd still do the work, but it would get them more engaged back to that student I was talking about Pride and Prejudice. Like, we read a synopsis of a chat, a few chapters, and then we read the actual chapters and he was like, oh, now I see what's happening here. So it's not like we didn't do the work. Right. And this displacement of doing the work of learning how to write, learning how to communicate, learning how to, that is, that is where I'm concerned. Right. Because mm -hmm. at some point you do certain things, you're going to be right. on the spot. Right. Kind of right. like with. So when people communicate over text, they have a 30 second window that they can figure out what they want to say. But when you're person to person and you see the tone and expression, that still exists. Right. 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 So it's one of those things that's that's evolving. Um, and I, I don't think schools have their full answer. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that it's see the full consequences, not just from a plagiarism standpoint, but from a skills development standpoint. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those ever evolving things. And I think it's an important, important question. Yeah, that's a great answer. It's, you know, it's staying on top of it. The world's going to evolve here pretty quickly and yeah. fast, right? Ever changing. Okay. So I have another question for you on um, what is the future of SAT and ACT test taking um, since the pandemic? What does that future look like for our kids? Do they have to? take the test. Yeah, good question. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think all of us would love to know the real answer, but here's the thing that I've seen. So I actually, before the pandemic, had plenty of students that did not 
take the SAT or ACT and apply to schools test optional and we're successful. Okay. So I had always done that probably since 2011, 2012. There are plenty of schools that were test optional before the pandemic. And what we saw in California is that it was impossible to go to test center. And I wish, you know, we had been really, you know, cognizant of that. this was impossible. Like other states were not as impossible, right? Yeah. But not a time and energy families put towards trying to get to a test center. Some people flew. I definitely told people don't fly. You don't need to go to Utah or Virginia, which is where students I know went to take a test. But bigger picture here is there are still a critical number, 80% of bachelor degree institutions are still test optional. Oh, 80%. Yeah. And I have students every year, including this past admission cycle, right? We do a lot of college admission and application support work in our office. That's what we've done for 20 years. Um, Plenty got in test optional. Now, some of them took the test and if they their score was at or above the median of the schools they were applying to, they would use it as part of their data and application process. And then they would go test optional for other schools. And yeah. they were plenty, again, plenty were successful in both application spaces. I wish more colleges would be transparent about the number of students applying test optional that got in versus the number of schools that students that use test scores, because now what's happened is because only certain students are using, you know, applying with test scores, the overall median for the schools has gone up. So that becomes very um, disheartening for a student who may not have the test scores that match up with the schools they're hoping to apply to. Yeah. Okay. So they should still apply even if it, if the school's test optional, right? Yeah. Because kids are getting in. Yeah. What you want to know is Schools are going to evaluate your application based on everything that you provide them. And if you don't provide test scores, then they're going to use everything else based on what you've provided to um, evaluate you. That's pretty simple, right? Um, And it's really important to remember the parts of the application. It's like the academic, the classes you take and the rigor of those classes and how you do in those classes. And all the research shows that grades are actually, and rigor of courses are better indicator of whether or not a student is successful in college than test scores when compared because test scores are one day, grades are over. Did you turn in the homework? Did you show up? Did you all these things? Yeah. And then you have, you know, your activities, your leadership, your, um, your teacher and counselor recommendations for certain schools, your personal statements, the UCPIQs, if you're in California and planning or planning UCs, I mean, and then special circumstances, are you playing early decision? Are you a recruited athlete, potentially a legacy? So there's so many pieces that the testing is one data point. And I help families really re- realize that because I think so many people get caught up on this data point. Yeah. And one thing that I found refreshing post-pandemic is I feel like a lot of parents and, and caregivers and students themselves are like, yeah. Um, I will tell you one story. I had a student last year who was incredibly successful in the application process, like got into even her stretch, stretch, stretch schools. And I, and I remember talking to her sophomore year and testing was very difficult for her. And I said, look, put in phenomenal artist. And I said, okay, okay here's what we're doing. Put the energy you would have put towards setting for this SAT or ACT or whatever you're going to do and put it towards your art portfolio. I want you to put that same amount of time and energy. I want you to, and I, so, so you don't get to get out and some of the, but I want you to focus on something that's really important to you that can show who you are as a candidate. And it's also really important to you generally. And she came up with a 
phenomenal art portfolio and used it. And and I tell you, when she called me and said, here's where I got in, I literally almost fell off my chair. I was like, oh, my gosh. now her essays were phenomenal, right? She worked the summer before, like, well, that's what I help a lot of students do is work the summer before senior year. So she'd put thought, she'd gone through edits, she'd done all those things too. But that's yeah. to say, we should be moving away from like the test score, the test score, the test score. Right. And overall holistic approach. Yep. And that's great advice because some ADHD kids, you know, will do well on their test and some don't. And so that was kind of what I was looking for. You can, you can get into college in other ways. Okay. So going back to kind of like the premise of your book um, and thinking of ADHD kiddos in this question, um, what skills should parents be focusing on when their child has ADHD and they're trying to get them through school and build a future, you know, that's successful for that particular child. What are those skills that they need? I mean, the underlying skill, number one, if I was going to start with anything was, is executive function skills, which is what I've been working on students for over 20 years. Okay. Can you tell us what an executive dysfunction is? Like, what is that? So when you struggle with Organizing, planning, prioritizing, starting and completing tasks, being adaptable if something goes awry. Um, those are the underlying starting skills that I foundationally work on. And then on top of that is like inhibitory control, right? So, um, you know, being very um, impulsive. And so you get really easily distracted or you can't control things or your emotional regulation is tough. And we know that's just natural for most students with ADHD. And then especially when they're, you know, experiencing puberty, their hormones are changing, their bodies are developing. Everything can be very much more difficult and amplified. But here's the thing, the time structure and support that students need, right, is really critical. We often just say, okay, well, let them fail, let them see the consequences. Mm, Well, here's the thing, we also want students to see the success. And we want students to start to build these skills, but they're probably going to need more guardrails. And this is where parents really need and caregivers need to really just do a self-evaluation. A lot of kids with ADHD have parents with ADHD who are undiagnosed. And so the time structure and support may be a difficult for a parent or caregiver to put in place, right? Also, it may affect your relationship. And I think the number one thing as a parent in general and caregiver in general for your teenager is that you want to maintain that relationship. So if that means you outsource this, outsource it. If that means you find someone else, and it could be that's what how people find their way to my office. It could be that you have a family friend. It could be that you have a cousin. It you could be that you have, it just not may not be that the messenger needs to be you as a parent. Yeah, right. But helping to make sure that they have these skills and that they feel comfortable knowing when and how to ask for help is important. So that they get through high school or middle school feeling like, hey, I do have systems in place. Now, here's another thing I see with a lot of students um, who have been diagnosed with ADHD. So they'll come to our office for a year and things will go really well. Like they're starting to see some incremental success. And remember, it takes longer. Yeah. So a year, you know, whatever. And then they'll be like, oh, I, I don't need to do this anymore. Or they're actually more often than not, the parent will be like, we don't need to do this anymore. And I'm like, they're doing well because these systems are in place. Why are you now rushing to take away these systems? Like I, as an adult 
have systems in place that I know help me thrive, right? We as adults say, okay, I'm going to a therapy appointment or I'm going to the physical therapist or I'm going to these things that are important to maintain my mental, emotional, physical health. So I don't take them away once it starts working. I keep going with it, right? And so it's that balance, right? We want students to have their autonomy. We want, But we also want them to be incrementally developing skills and say, hey, these are the touch points I need to have in place. So back to the initial skill. The executive functioning skills and inhibitory control is part of that and self-awareness. And that's actually really key for connection, right? Because if you are impulsive, if you are get angry really easily, if you blurt things out, starting in middle school, other kids don't want to maybe hang out with you. And that affects your connection and that affects your friendships and that affects how you see yourself. So a lot of times parents and caregivers, we identify that that is who our child is, but we also want to identify like if they need social skills support, that's just as important as executive function support because they want to feel connected. They want to have multiple spaces where they feel a sense of belonging. And it's so hard to watch a child struggle socially. Now, the other piece to know is there are multiple places that they can feel a sense of connection. Maybe for some students with ADHD, belonging to a club where they just meet once a week, right? That builds that connection, but there's no long to hang out with these people 24 seven, right? Um, that's one option that I've seen really work or a sports team or an activity that's a drop-in that's outside of the realm of the school they go to. Yeah. Right. Um, so those, those, you know, the executive functioning inhibitory control as it leads also not just to schoolwork and getting things done, but also to connection. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. All right. So it's the beginning of the school year. What should parents, what are steps some parents and kids should take? And I think in relation to your book, like what's the mindset for as kids and parents are starting school? What is the right, what's the right? I think we all start the new school year with this like idea that a, this year is going to be amazing. It's going to be different in some way if we want it to be different in some way. And then we go about through week six, maybe week eight, maybe we make it to week 10. And then kind of sometimes the wheels start falling off and we get very frustrated. And the thing I would say is putting more structure and support up front, whether you have touch-ins that are twice a week. Again, I don't think parents should be 24 seven on their kids, Canvas or Schoology or all those things, but I do think they should create collaborate to create the touch points that make sense for both both of them and their family. And it might be that another person is the person to do that. But I think you need to put more support up front. I guess that's the biggest idea around binders, digital folders, planners, food, sleep, stress management. Those are all things we talk about in our office. You know, what happens every year? People, you know, people sign up for fall in our office in June, but then we have even a lot of return families that wait till August. We even have a lot of returning families that wait till the first few weeks go by. And I go, that is not what you want to do. You want to put the, the structure in when there's less work so that you're ramping up. You're Because you know what happens? Those kids that call us in September and start working with us mid-September, even though school started August 9th, there's always at the end of the semester, we get there and we're like, oh yeah, what were those three missing assignments the week of August 17th before we saw you? 
And so we worked all semester to build these skills. And the parent was like, oh, I didn't think they had any homework that way. Build more structure up front so we can, you know, decrease and we can reduce. And our goal is to get students to take over some of this themselves, right? So I'm not yeah. saying that we are the crutch, but you know your kid is struggles and that always by week 10, there's like a, a hole that everybody's claw- crawling out of and the family <laughs> dog is stressed out then you don't wait till week four to try and address it. And I think that's what happens a lot of times. Yep. Good advice. (laughs) You know, you've been down the road (laughs) many times. Okay. Okay. Do you have anything else you'd like to share um, as we wrap it up today? Yeah. I think the one thing that I want families to know is that having done this work for now over 20 years, it, you know, when you're in the messy middle, it can be so overwhelming and this work is really hard. And I think that parents and caregivers and students themselves don't give them enough, give give themselves enough credit. Students are tired going through an entire school day. It is exhausting for many of them and they're trying to regulate. They're trying to keep up in a system that's not really designed for where they thrive most. So I think the biggest thing to know is I've seen so many students thrive as young adults where parents are like, is it ever going to happen? Is it ever going to happen? It will focus on the habits, the routines, the systems, getting them the support they need, putting structure in up front and admitting that this is hard and that you're not going to, there's no always getting it right. Um, I think that's the one thing because our goal is that our, our our children and our young adults are thriving, that are able to deal with stress, that are able to deal with um, disappointment because that's part of life. Yeah. Um, and that there are multiple ways to move through that. Um, I think, I guess the last thing I would say is, I think a lot of people really focused on how can I make sure my kid is happy all the time? That's just not gonna happen. We're in a world of uncertainty. I think focusing on the book is around how do I make sure my kids have the underlying skills to navigate this world that is ever-changing and full of uncertainty in a way that helps them be socially and emotionally well. Yeah, that's great. Lovely message, Anna. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs>